Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Tessa. Hello. Andy and Tessa have had their turn. So this week is my chance to pick the assignment. And I chose wisely. I decided because I've been trying to get Tessa to watch Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love for years that I would just commit to the bit. And this is a Sam Assigns auteur version, P.T. Anderson. All three of us watched three films from one of my favorite directors, Paul Thomas Anderson. The films we watched are 1999's Magnolia, 2002's Punch Drunk Love, and then we skip ahead to 2012's The Master. Wait, 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 wait. We're not doing Resident Evil, Event Horizon, and Monster Hunter? So you only get to do the joke once, and and you already did it, so you you did it the other time. (laughs) Take, Take sip of what I imagine is tea. So, the real question is, will we become P.T. Standersons? Well, gross. So... See, I imagine it's like margarita-flavored malt liquor or something. Oh, what Andy's drinking? Yeah. Oh. It's coffee. It's coffee. It's it, it's It's freaking well, 918, okay? We're not going yet to my, uh, to my melted popsicle sticks and tequila special, <laughs> all right? Well, I would have said that... We're going. I, I I would have made a joke about you drinking the Kool Aid, but that is a move. That is not the cult leader we're talking about today. What cult so. leader are we talking about? Although there is, although there is somebody in that movie who makes his own alcohol from chemicals. So, kind of. <laughs> this is. A, I just. You know, we're not. We're not to the master yet. But I just want you to know, this is a game I play. Whenever Joaquin Phoenix is in a role, I'm like, what if it had been River instead? And what if he had said, that movie's stupid. I'm not doing that. Joker. Anyway, it's a little walk hard Dewey Cox reference for you, but I will not say the thing out loud. All right. So P.T. Anderson is a, a director to whom, for whom I have a lot of respect and admiration. I've seen all of his movies, and we're going to talk about that in our last segment. Magnolia is his third film. His first movie is Heart Eight, which came out in 1996. What you'll notice about P.T. Anderson is he has a lot of regulars. Heart Eight has Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley, who show up in multiple movies later. Also has Gwyneth Paltrow and Samuel L. Jackson. We think of Paul Thomas Anderson as an auteur who does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Heart Eight was taken away from him by the studio, cut and released, and then he stole the original cut fixed it, submitted it to Cannes, and got it released with the help of funding from Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, and Gwyneth Paltrow. They, they definitely believed in him. And as soon as folks saw the, the cut of Heart 8, which is a really good movie, that's when he got to do what he wanted to do. He followed that up with Boogie Nights, which is an expansion of a movie, the first movie he made as a high school senior. It stars famously Mark Wahlberg as porn star Dirk Diggler, Heather Graham as Roller Girl, Don Cheadle plays a a big part in this movie, and then we have regulars Julianne Moore and a bunch of others. Moore, Burt Reynolds, 
and Paul Thomas Anderson for his screenplay were all nominated. This will start a streak of Paul Thomas Anderson screenplays being nominated and never winning, and actors being nominated and never winning until a certain cobbler does a movie about an oil man, which we're not talking about today. That brings us to Magnolia, his third film in 1999. And not Steel Magnolias. No. Andy, we'll start with you. All right. What's your question? What did you think about Magnolia? It was very long. Was it? It's three hours and eight minutes. Okay. That's longer than Avengers Endgame. That's true. But I would argue it does a better job of balancing storylines than Avengers Endgame does. Well, we can, uh, we can have a fight about this afterwards. Magnolia was a movie that has an opening that is so strong that I knew I would sit and watch the remaining three hours, no matter what happened. And did you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Tessa, overall, big picture. How did you feel about this movie? Did you have difficulty sitting through it as Andy, according to Andy, did not? Well, I have to say, so let me just preface this by saying that the only PTA movie, no, that's not true. I've seen two PTA movies before this. There Will Be Blood and The Phantom Thread. I kind of knew what I was getting myself into here, but not really at the same time. Magnolia is very ponderous. I have feelings about P.T. Anderson that I wasn't able to really crystallize until I watched all three of these movies, so I'll talk about it at the end. But this movie, it had a lot of really interesting ideas in it. It had a lot of really good scene work in it. There is a turn that happens at the in the last act that was wholly unexpected, jumped several times during it, not in a horror movie sort of way, just in a, I was not expecting this to happen. So it it is a truly wild turn that this movie takes. But yeah, it's very ponderous. It's very long. It's very slow at times. There were times where I was like, I'm not sure why this storyline is in here because it has this general structure of the lots of storylines that interact with each other in very specific ways. Yeah, that's kind of my first thoughts. If you've seen a lot of Robert Altman movies, you know exactly what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing. Uh, Shortcuts is the thing that comes to mind, the movie that comes to mind by Robert Altman. Did you, before we start talking about any of the storylines and and why they matter and and how they're framed, did you like the way that there are multiple storylines? Yeah, I am am a huge fan of of this kind of thing, Uh, hyperlink stories or whatever you want to call them. I I, I freaking love these. Um, I loved it and I loved seeing at the end how they were actually all connected. Right. Tessa? How does, how does Tessa feel about hyperlink movies? I generally really like them. I liked this one less than I generally like my hyperlink stories. Again, I, I get it. I thought there were some really good threads. I thought it was cool seeing how some of them came together. But the connection between these threads to me seemed a little bit more tenuous than they usually do in hyperlink stories. And so for me, it was very, I actually said this to Sam about a quarter of the way through the movie. This movie's very disorienting and it's doing it on purpose. And while I don't mind that in movies, I, I and this one does not, it, it is doing it on purpose. It's not laughing at you because you're disoriented, which I appreciated. For me, this just didn't, uh, it had a lot of really good parts and it just didn't really come together in the way that I really wanted it to. 
But part of that also could be that the John C. Riley storyline was very annoying to me. Like, I really didn't like it. And sometimes in these hyperlink stories, one bad storyline is enough to, like, disrupt my enjoyment of the film. I immediately thought about Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson from Love Actually when you said that. Although it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the film for me. Yeah, Andy, you mentioned a little while ago the beginning, the the three weirdly coincidental things to which the whole point is, and this is the way the movie's framed. It doesn't. What seems like coincidence is not. These things happen, and they happen for a reason. But you said that that hooked you. The beginning. How? 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 Why? Why for? I think I think it's a it's a great way to start a movie. I think the Patton Oswalt death at the at the first beginning, the um, the scuba diver who got accidentally hooked by a plane and wound up dead in a tree, and then finding that coincidence. Like these things are the um, the poetic irony, weird twists that. No sane person would have seen coming, but sometimes I really, I really, I don't know if, um, cause I've always heard one of these stories, um, the, the, the suicide shotgun jumping off the building, getting shot by the shotgun thing. I've always heard that. I've never known if it's true. I've, I've read it in the Darwin awards, etc. I don't know. It, it's, it's just a strong way to be like, Hey, these are, these are the kinds of stories we're going to be talking about. We're going to be unpacking an entire thing. And Magnolia is discussed as a uh, psychological epic drama. And I, I think it's very much that. It's Oedipus Rex without the, you know. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it is trying to be Greek. And it is trying to be about fathers and sons. And it's interesting. Okay. No, I mean, like, that that's what it's saying. Like, an, a psychological drama about fathers and sons. To me, that screams Oedipus Rex. Like, it's trying to be grand. It's trying to be big. It's trying to say something that is very dramatic and very operatic in a lot of ways. Even though it's setting it in places that are perhaps not as operatic. I uh, I don't don't agree with that because there are women in There's this movie. There's even a <laughs> Greek chorus at one point in the film. The Still doesn't mean I agree with it at all. I think this movie is not about fathers and sons. I think it's about parents and children. But most of the parents are fathers. Mm-hmm. And, and most... most of the children are sons. Yes, Claudia is totally, totally Not a all son. of them, but most of them. Look. We also get metaphorical fathers and sons. I guess you need to ask the Earl Partridge thing now. I mean, if you, if you, if you want me to talk about it, I'd yeah. be happy to. Go ahead, because you have very specific, I was going to say, you have very specific opinions about what this movie is about. The only the other thing I'll say is that that Exodus verse that comes up several times is specifically about sins of fathers. You and your reading the Bible. <laughs> I saw this movie in the theater in 1999, so it's been a good 22 years that I've been waiting to talk about this on a podcast. Not that podcast existed 22 years ago, but, but I, you know. Well, it was called you guys Talk think Radio. Too. Anyway, you're meant, I think, by, by Anderson to go, I don't understand what's happening. It, you're supposed to feel that way. And eventually, uh, if you don't walk out of the theater, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, if you stay through the movie, at some point, you will start to see the connections. The connection is basically this game show, What Do Kids Know? 
and its creator, the father of the show, if you will, Earl Partridge, played by a dying Jason Robards. We we see storylines that spin out from this man. His, his son, Frank T.J. Mackey, played by Tom Cruise. We see a surrogate son, Phil Parma, played by regular and great Philip Seymour Hoffman. We see another surrogate son, or brother or something, the host of the show, Jimmy Gator, Philip Baker Hall. We see William H. Macy, the original quiz kid. And then we see the current quiz kid, Stanley Spector. So a lot of these relationships are formed either directly by father-son or by surrogate fathers or father as creator. And the control that these, these adults exert over children And with Stanley, we see the effects in real time, but with the other adults, we see what's happened to them. We see the quiz kid, Donnie Smith, played by William H. Macy, as a a, a failure, basically. He's living off of his past fame, which was taken from him by his parent, literally and figuratively. You know, we see Tom Cruise's character, Frank T.J. Mackey, who has taken a different path to fame and stardom, you know, and and along the way, we do see, uh, you know, Julianne Moore's character, uh, Linda Partridge, who is the trophy wife, and Claudia Gator, the daughter of Jimmy Gator, we do see the effects that these relationships have on women as well. But the exigence here is to talk about the effects that fathers have. And and in a way, this, this kind of, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about it as coincidence. Back in the early 90s, we talked about it as chaos theory, as, as the butterfly flapping its wings across the world and then things happen, right? This is how can one man's relationship with his son spin out and affect so many other lives? And that's what, that's what Anderson's interested in showing us, is that these things that seem so highly coincidental are not. They, they are not. They happened, and the connections between them matter. So that, that's monologue number one about Magnolia. So um, <laughs> does the movie succeed in doing that? I mean, I, I, I've heard some mixed reactions from, from both of you regarding that, but, but how successful is it as, at its main argument? I think that the main success of this film is actually in that argument because it's so uncompromising. It's so brutal in the ways that it shows that Children pay for the mistakes of their parents, whether it's through trauma or through some other kind of dysfunction. And it's not just the mistakes of their parents. It's the mistakes of other people's parents, too. Like, there are characters in this who are paying for the mistakes of people that they've never even met, which I just think is, is fascinating. But it's, there's no relief in this film. I mean, there's one person who's supposed to be the relief in this film, and that's John C. Riley's character, because he's completely disconnected from this like web of people. He just becomes connected through his relationship with Claudia. But the problem with John C. Riley's character is that he's a cop. And there's a really terrible <laughs> scene at the beginning where he's yelling at a black woman to calm down. And it's just like, ugh, no. But yeah, for the most part, this movie does a great job in just being like, no, mistakes have consequences. And there's no relief from that. There's no relief from it. You have to pay for your own mistakes and your children will pay for your mistakes as well, which I can appreciate. I can appreciate a film that commits to that as a ongoing thread. I mean, 
John C. Riley was clearly just playing a modern day Barney Fife. I think that Magnolia had something to say that wasn't so much about the trauma. I think the movie is trying to say, hey, these things that we see in films, the whole father reconciling with the son after being estranged, you know what? Sometimes there are reasons for that estrangement. And sometimes you don't get that happy ending. And sometimes you don't get that catharsis on your dying bed. And you know what? You're going to have to deal with that. Philip Seymour Hoffman even makes reference to these kinds of scenes in movies. And and then it the twist at the end where, no, both of the dying old men deserve to be estranged. They, they right. have done terrible yes. things. And, and we, as the viewers at the beginning, get their point, especially with Claudio. We, we, we see, we see an angry woman and we see the, the father trying to be, Hey, I just, I just, I just want to talk. Okay. I just want to, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're thinking like, okay, no, no, no. I hope she, she does like find peace or some kind of closure. And then you find out, no, you know what? Jimmy Gator didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve any kind of closure. He shouldn't have been there. He he actually was doing uh, harm by even being there. And then the great, beautiful way that the ending with Claudia is shot and it shows the painting that she made with, but it really did happen. Oh. Yeah, and the twist that I, I keep sort of dancing around is straight up Old Testament. Like that to me confirmed that this is supposed to be about you know, the children will pay for the sins of their fathers. Like, According to P.T. Anderson, he did not know it was a reference to the Bible. Well, It, it was a reference author, to something else. Death of the author, it's a reference to the Bible. <laughs> uh, there is another famous P.T. in history. So Barnum. I would, I would, um, I would warn anyone when, when you are being told something like that by somebody who is so meticulous you're you're getting P.T. Barnumed if you don't believe he didn't know that. Like I just no, come on. Well, man, he forget about he's, it. he says what it was a reference to. So I I it, believe it doesn't. It well that would make more sense if he didn't literally quote from the same book of the Bible in which the frogs exist. It it, it doesn't. It's not. It's not real. He he knows what he's doing. I trust my creators to tell me the truth. And I think a lot of art happens despite creators trying to do something like we're not going to get into formalism versus not formalism but I don't even know like, what those words mean formalism well, is tuxedo Tessa <laughs> tuxedo criticism so it, you know the thing that's really interesting is for me and Paul Thomas Anderson is that his greatest successes are purposeful and to me his greatest failures are also purposeful I I give him credit despite his claim to the contrary, which I think is a lie. I think it's fake. But I also criticize him for things he does on purpose. There are a couple of other things that, that happen in this movie that people just mercilessly roll their eyes at. And one of them is the, the Amy Mann soundtrack. One of the big through lines through Magnolia is Amy Mann. The movie starts with a cover of One. You see the second song on the soundtrack is playing... Uh, when when Claudia is like jacked up the volume on her stereo, that's momentum. There's another song on the soundtrack that isn't featured in the film called Deathly, 
but it features that line from the movie, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing each other again? And this all culminates with a scene when all the main characters, they have this joint sing-along session to the song Wise Up. How did that play for both of you? I loved it. I mean, I already said it's a Greek chorus. I think that's it's... what you thought the Greek chorus was. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I I I I would not have pegged that. It's as when being it's the Greek when, chorus. It's when the gaze of the audience is directed towards a group of people who are telling you what is going on that is out something that happens outside the actual dialogue. You know what? Okay, hold on. You know what? I think you're right, because I was thinking about the boy in his rap, but that's Tiresias. That's the soothsayer, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, I, th- I think you might think, be right about I this. Think this is a mismatch. I think that this is a, this is a, oh, what is it called? What's the technical? Pastiche. I think this is a pastiche of Old Testament and Greek tragedy. Like, I really think that. I mean, that's, that's, that's a valid interpretation in your mind where this is a real thing. But in, uh, in reality, where I live, because this is my reality and, uh, and everything is subjective and materialism and uh, and other philosophical terms from the 1960s, I think this is a brilliant, brilliant pastiche of Flash Gordon and Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. I get it. I, I see a pastiche. It, but if, what if you said it in space? It was some sort of, um, uh, if you will, star war. No, no, no. Conflict. Space mm, conflict. Space conflict. I oh, I think that might work. Hey, hey, but what if what if and hear me out on this, what if the space conflict is taking place during a larger journey or trek, if you will? <gasps> Can't do it. Okay. Uh I tried. So I I the thing about the the you brought up the specter of postmodernism, which has no place in this house. In this house, we do not observe postmodernism because it's stupid. And we'll talk about stupidity and postmodernism with Thomas Pynchon here in a little bit. Before we move on, we have to talk about the man, the myth, the Scientologist, the legend, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and won Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes, Tom Cruise. This is Tom Cruise's prestige role. This is, this is Tom Cruise, is a real serious actor. Thoughts? One, him as this uh, Tucker Max, uh, the game or whatever, uh, pickup artist. Oh, man, I love that. I love, I think Tom Cruise is an incredibly talented actor. I think that he is mostly very smart and purposeful about what he does. I think the Mission Impossible movies, even though I haven't seen the newest one, are all very fun. Ah, oh, man. I think uh, he has a great sense of humor about himself to do what he did in Tropic Thunder. Th- this this was so heartbreaking and wonderful, and I, I loved the interview with him, and then I loved the scene with him yelling at his father. So I think Tom Cruise obviously is fantastic in this. Like you said, he nails this particular persona. I mean, we've seen people do this in real life. It's very... It's very offensive, but it's also very like, yeah, this is a person. These are people who make money off of this. I actually think that William H. Macy also kind of deserves a shout out. Like, I had no idea that he had this kind of range. I mean, I've seen him in other stuff before, but he usually plays it very straight. He usually plays it very, like, 
I don't know. But I I really, really appreciated his performance in this. It, it was one of the standout threads to me. Like, I kept wanting to go back to him and figure out what was going on with him, what was going on with his his insistence that he needed uh, orthodontal surgery and the way he had the obvious, this obvious crush on the bartender and the way he was trading these quips with this, like, old, like, queen who was sitting on the end of the bar. Like, everything about that storyline I just thought was great. And I thought that as, mu- as much as I love Tom Cruise, and I think a lot of people do a lot of really good work in this, William H. Macy actually really stood out to me. I think you all need to think about the real star of this film, which is, that's right, Mr. Peanut Butter himself, Paul F. Tompkins, who played. Man on the phone with Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose mother has breast cancer. <laughs> oh, it, these the, the random weird castings uh, that show up in Paul Thomas Anderson films are are pretty great. Jim Beaver thrown in there for good, uh, yep, for good recognition. Uh, Orlando Jones, <laughs> just wow. And well, and that that really underlines the fact that that he is a director who you want to be associated with. Yeah, you know. I mean, even Fiona Apple, like years later after they had broken up, was like, can you direct a video for me? I mean, so anyway. And this movie was dedicated to F.A., as my wife pointed out, probably Fiona Apple. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to talk about this without talking about Fiona Apple. I'm just going to I'm going to tell you this story because this is this is very important. This is why we're doing this episode. OK, so I was in college when this movie came out. And I had, not unlike community, a study group. We took several classes together. It was, it was, there were, it was me and two other girls who were about the same age as me. And then there was two more who were older than us. And, and the, the one woman who'd come back to school, she's the one who introduced me to those books by that author that really made a different trajectory in my life, who is a terrible person, it turns out, that author is. But the, but the guy, the older guy... He was, he was married. He, he's one of those people that got married super young. Like we talked about One Tree Hill last week. That's him, except soccer, not basketball. And so we went to go see this movie, the two of us, me and, me and this other guy, and just sat there. I, it had to be within the first hour, like 30 to 45 minutes in. It's like a half full theater. Somebody walked, got up, walked out, left. And then throughout the whole movie, people would get up and walk out. There were probably four other people left at the end of the movie. Like, just so many people kept walking out. And so he looks at me, and he says, how does it feel to be the only one in the theater who actually understood that movie? And I said, I have to tell you, it feels pretty good. You know, I, and of course, I've been taken down several notches in life since then. But, but you know, it was this experience of, of going to a movie theater and, and going, wow, I got that. That movie said something very specific to me. I was, I was floored by it. And what it said to me was, and I think I was proven right later, I feel, that this is a very Old Testament take on forgiveness. You know, you have the very New Testament-y, all you got to do is say you're sorry and it's all good because Christ dying, etc., etc. But this is very much more, no, there are consequences for things that happen. And it's not just the things that happen to you, it's the things that happen to all these people around you. And it's just, you know, because Paul Thomas Anderson is very concerned with this idea of mistakes and punishment and atonement. And some things are too big to atone for. And in and, and these systems of trials. And later I went back to see Boogie Nights and Heart Eight, which are 
all three of these movies are concerned with that. So my my friend, uh, I told you he was married. He had a really, really bad divorce not too long after this. And this is like a Paul Thomas Anderson story to me. Like he fell off the face of the earth for a couple of years. And then he showed back up in, in a class I was taking when I was a graduate student. And he like he'd had like, he was a completely different person. It was so weird. And then he drifted away and I've never seen or heard from him since. I try to look for him every so often online, but, but it's just so weird. It was such a weird time in life. Paul Thomas Anderson lost out at the Oscars to Alan Ball for uh, screenplay. Alan Ball, of course, that was um, 1999 was a giant year for movies. American Beauty won most everything that year. So it's funny how that worked out. Mm-hmm. But when they announce Alan Ball's name, you can see this online on YouTube. Paul Thomas Anderson just makes the quick look at the camera and makes this shocked face. Like he's so surprised because obviously American Beauty was going to win everything. And then while Alan Ball is giving his speech, it cuts back to him. And Fiona Apple is sitting next to him, just like trying to comfort him, just like mean mugging the entire audience. It is so great. I love her so much. Uh- <laughs> Andy, I know you have things to say about Punch Drunk Love. This movie was one of the formative experiences for me as a person being able to express myself and what's going on inside my head. And it is because of the movie's soundtrack, which is very Robert Altman-esque. And what I am saying is this movie's soundtrack does such a good job of explaining how Adam Sandler's character Barry is feeling at any point in time that I was like, oh, I've been having panic attacks. These are what panic attacks are. This is how I tell people what panic attacks feel like. It's so wonderful. And and the score is something that uh, really, really clearly means a lot to Paul Thomas Anderson because everything is so very important. But Punch Drunk Love, if Magnolia is the kind of send up of the type of story that's like, hey, you know, a strange father coming together with their children after, you know, making amends and stuff uh, and everything ending up happy. Punch Drunk Love is a send up of the the uh, romantic comedy from from like the 60s. And I think it's so wonderful, and, except it actually is like a romantic comedy and not that kind of story. So I I think if you listened it's very hard to describe Magnolia. It is very much an ensemble movie, but I think you understand what it's about. Punch Drunk Love is about a, a man uh, named Barry Egan, played by Adam Sandler, who has some sort of difficulty interacting with the world. He has a large family of sisters who just are terrible. <laughs> and he meets a woman, Lena, played by Emily Watson, and they begin a relationship and background foreground to this relationship is the very real story of the man who discovered the loophole in the healthy choice frequent flyer promotion. That's a real subplot of this movie. It's also a true story as well as the identity thieving sex line workers headed by the mattress man himself, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's such a weird movie to try and describe plot summary-wise. It's also, almost to the minute, half as long as Magnolia. But the big thing here, of course, and and Andy, this was such a four-minute movie for me in a slightly different way, but it's hilarious. Let's turn it over to Tessa 
not a man. And and this this movie plays significantly less well, just like the John C. Riley character does now, when it comes time to talk about what is Barry Egan's deal. Tessa? I don't think it's important. That's actually kind of my answer. I think a lot of attention is paid on the internet, perhaps, to what is his diagnosis. Like, he has something wrong with him. And it's very clear that Barry Egan has either a mental illness or some sort of cognitive processing disorder. But it took me a minute to realize, like, P.T. Anderson doesn't actually care about Barry Egan's diagnosis. It doesn't actually matter whether he has autism or some form of, you know, ID or if he, I mean, it's very clear that he has a lot of trauma from his terrible, terrible sisters, and that causes these panic attacks. And he's obviously very quirky in the way that he interacts with the rest of the world. He's clearly neurodivergent in some way. He's not neurotypical. He is neuroatypical. I don't think it actually really impacts the story, what his diagnosis is. His diagnosis is a stand-in for the ways in which he does not fit into society, which is good or bad, depending on how you feel about the use of disability as a metaphor. I personally land on the side of using disability as a metaphor is somewhat dangerous in a lot of ways, especially if you're not actually invested in the lives of somebody who has some sort of neuroatypical disorder because there are a lot of people who just have to live there and you know what like it's not a metaphor for them it's their life and so you know for me that's a little bit problematic when it comes to this movie however I do like the character of Barry Egan I do think Adam Sandler does a very good job with this character I just feel a little iffy about the ways in which people are like, oh, does he have schizophrenia? Which, by the way, he does not. Um, does he have bipolar disorder? You know, like, it, it doesn't actually matter to PTA what he has. Like, the whole point is that it's a metaphor. It's actually kind of useless to try to apply a real diagnosis to this character. Well, I think the point, Tessa, is that it it doesn't matter if it's a metaphor or anything. I think The point is just simply that no matter what, Barry is a a person, and yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I I mean, I certainly never saw or or even thought of it as as being a metaphor. I can totally see how you 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 know you 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 get there, but overall, I just think that this is just this is what happens when you're treated the way you're treated by the people around you, and Barry is definitely treated like something by his sisters. (laughs) I will say my favorite performance in this, I, I, again, Adam Sandler, really good in this. My favorite performance in this, though, is from Mary Lynn Radscub, who is plays Elizabeth Egan. Her walk in this made me laugh every, like, she didn't even have to say anything. Her walk told me everything I needed to know about her, like, with the way her hair would, like, bounce up and down as she was walking. Yes, like, she's a terrible person. This is all I need to know about her. She's so stressed out. Just real quick, yeah, big ups to Chloe O'Brien. You're the best. We miss you. I also love the music. I was going to talk about the music in Magnolia, but I, I think this is a better place to actually talk about it. So I have never been as stressed out watching a movie as Magnolia during certain parts because of the music. That That's not true. Uncut Gems stressed me out a bit more than Magnolia did, but... It occurred to me about halfway through Punch Drunk Love, and then this was confirmed with the Masters, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. The music for this, P.T. Anderson is writing a classical movement. Like, when he, I mean, I know that this is 
produced by John Brion, which Sam will tell us all about all of the, the ins and outs of that here in a minute. But like what he's doing is he is creating like this, this almost reads like a, like a full piece of classical music, like a concerto or a sonata or something like that. And it even gets to the point where with Punch Drunk Love, you get this moment during the opening credits where you hear a little sample of each part of the music, which very much reads like an overture. You even get to hear just this little bitty part of Shelley Duvall singing, um, what's the name of the song? He Needs Me. Singing He Needs Me, which is, of course, from the movie Popeye, which features prominently in the film. You get a little bit of snippet of that at the beginning. And to me, that... When I realized that that's what was happening with the music, like, it's not just that he's using classical music, it's that he's creating a soundtrack that actually functions as a piece, like, this is not just a movie, it is also a piece of music. And I I really liked that about this movie. Oh, and um, and uh, what, uh, what other person have we referenced who directed Popeye uh, earlier in this episode? Robert Altman! That's right. Director of uh, Shortcuts and Gosford Park and other very, very, very good movies himself, Robert Altman. Do you want to talk about John Brion, Sam? I, I do. I do. Now that this seems like a good... I mean, I think I think there's obviously a case to do another auteur episode of Monkey on Robert Altman. It's not the next one we'll do, but perhaps in the future. I would I would add Nashville to that to that list of, of great films. Gosford Park was really good, too. He makes good movies. Prairie Home Companion wasn't great. Anyway, what did I... Oh, yeah. So so John Brion does the, the soundtrack for this. He was Paul Thomas Anderson's frequent collaborator until the following movie, There Will Be Blood, when uh, Anderson switches over to Johnny Greenwood, Radiohead's guitarist turned composer. The man who has like three Oscar uh, possible scores this year. So he was... Um, Around the time that he did the There Will Be Blood soundtrack, he did the he became the in-house composer for the BBC. Fun fact. John Brion, after Punch Drunk Love, does, turns around and does the score for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So that's, that's that dude. But that's, that's a different movie altogether. So the other thing, so the, the music is a big deal, but that, that color, uh, those, those colors that show up, I mean, those are meant you know, to, to, to correspond to the music. And you mentioned earlier, Andy, how, how that, that, that music and those colors, I would imagine both combined, really tell a story by themselves. Tess is about to talk about the harmonium. I don't remember what I said at this point. Uh, something I'm sure about how the colors and, and the sound kind of go together and make this just beautiful, like, feeling of, of panic in, in Adam Sandler. Fun, fun little trivia fact that I found while while reading this, actually. So John Brion is the person who introduced PTA to the harmonium, which is the harmonium that he finds at the beginning of the film that he keeps kind of playing with. There's a hole in it that he has to fix with some duct tape. That actually happened to John Brion. He found a harmonium with some a hole in it, and then he took it on tour with him and Amy Mann. So it brings yep. us all the way back around to Amy Mann. And Fiona Apple. So... Uh, John Brion also produced Fiona Apple's second album, 1999's When the Pawn Hits, and a lot more words come after that. She takes a few years off after that and comes back in the mid-aughts with an album that's eventually released, Extraordinary Machine. This is one of those, those album stories. She 
recorded most of it with John Brion and the label wouldn't release it. And and if you you can find it online, it is it is great. That that is a great partnership. But it's really interesting about Paul Thomas Anderson's world. He meets people and they know people and they all become part of this orbit. I I mentioned with Magnolia I had a very strong reaction to this movie. I I had a very strong reaction to to both movies. I it's hard not to see this one as a very New Testamenty version because you know Barry's grown up with this family has a lot of these issues uh, with anger specifically that have come from just being added by his sisters all the time from childhood and you know they they love to talk about how he took the hammer to the sliding glass window and I mean if you look at my hands. My right hand is puffier than my left hand from the numerous times I put my hand through walls and doors and other things as a child because I had the same same set of problems. So I, you know, what is his mental illness? I don't know. It, maybe he doesn't have one. It doesn't matter because whatever he has I, or had doesn't have, I don't. But I, you know, experience the world in a very similar way. How I Met Your Mother, of course, talks about it as revertigo, right? But for him, it's a very violent thing when he interacts with his his sisters it's very hard to break out of that and and become an adult but unlike magnolia we see that these sins can be washed away can be can be overwritten in in a way and that's of course underscored by the mattress man storyline you know as tessa would point out might want to talk about it here and again in a minute you know the idea that sex work is is demonized right in this movie and that, you know, of course he called a sex line and they stole his identity and tried to extort him and cause the main climactic scene of violence later on. It also gives us that hysterically funny, but also deadly serious interaction that Adam Sandler, with phone, re- with phone receiver in hand, has with <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. We're good. We're good. It's such a great scene. But it's the idea that, that these things don't have to wreck your life. You can find a way out of these things. Unlike Magnolia, which tells us, nope, you stuck with them, better figure it out. And we're always looking for people to save us, which is, by the way, the, the, the Oscar-nominated song from Magnolia, Save Me. In this one, there's a better possibility. The ending is a very graduate-like ending. The now what? And we don't get to see that. We don't get to see how this plays out. We don't know if this relationship will work. All we do know is the possibility exists, which is different than what we got in Magnolia. That's why I felt so strongly about it. It turns out the answer was love. If you can just find someone to love you, then the mistakes that other people have made and that you have made don't matter. Which I can I can appreciate as a as a thematic element. I will say just really quickly to it doesn't matter what his diagnosis is, but we should also be very careful about mixing mental illness with cognitive disorders, which are two very, very different things. Just wanted to throw that out there. The other thing, too, is that Adam Sandler is doing such a great job. And like, obviously, now now we know that Adam Sandler can give these types of serious performances. But I was trying to imagine watching this at the time and seeing this as like one of his first really serious acting performances. And he nails it. And he's funny at the same time. Like, it's one of those things where it's like he's doing such a great job channeling this very serious, dramatic, really empathetic role 
while at the same time doing these incredibly funny physical things that are uh, that are more subtle than what he normally does, but also just made me laugh so hard. I have no idea whose idea it was to do the whole thing where when he goes to find the mattress man, he still has the phone receiver in his hand the entire time. I don't know if that was P.T. Anderson. I don't know if that was Adam Sandler. Either way... It was hilarious. Like, I just kept laughing at that. And his entire interaction with the mattress man, just like I was in stitches the entire time, especially when the mattress man tries to have the last word. (laughs) And Barry just turns around and he's like, what did I just say? And he's like, it's fine. It's fine. fine. Uh, uh, That's that. Like, uh, it just, I laughed so hard. And so This, to me, was a little bit more forgiving. There was a bit more relief in it than there was in Magnolia. As you mentioned, Sam, there are some things in it that that I think socially we've come to a different context for them, especially around sex work. I mean, sex work obviously still is very stigmatized in the U.S., but I don't think calling a sex line before you got into a relationship with someone would necessarily be as stigmatized as it was in perhaps the early 2000s. That being said... Why I think we also know better now than to give your social security number to someone over the phone. Like to me, I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Not your social security number, but also I don't think that we had gotten to the point where scamming on the phone was as prevalent in the early 2000s or we just hadn't like caught up culturally yet to that. I know it still happens, but I feel like we're a lot more wary of that kind of thing now. Tessa, you you, you know security is like, my thing internet security and scam security is like literally my my specialty for what i'm doing my dissertation on it 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 still it was very prevalent back then it was very very prevalent beforehand like it was just everywhere uh these scams were were out everywhere i mean and it's it's just important that like barry was a lonely man and uh you know this was this one chance to to talk to somebody he he thought could help him completely believe that's why he did it i'm just saying now it's a little bit less perhaps believable that like you'd be so like we just we have a different context now what 20 years later about scamming people over the phone than we did then so that that's all i'm trying to point out okay forget about the being scammed part there's 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 something bigger at play here and and i'll just preface louise guzman oh if Man, he is the MVP of the PTA they world. Love that is him. just it's just he is so great in every PTA role that he has. Period. I cracked up when he wears the suit the day after Barry wears his suit for the first time. Yeah, it's great. I but okay, so here's the thing. The sisters you think about why do we think Barry has a mental illness? We think that because the sisters tell us he's crazy. There's something wrong with him. And so we're we're kind of tricked into thinking that, and and I would I would propose that it's one, one possibility if you want to read it literally, he's just got social anxiety, and and not the kind that everybody seems to have. This is this is my asthma thing. Not everybody has asthma if you have trouble breathing. That still makes me very angry to this day. But you know maybe that's what it is. I will also point out that Tessa is a very caring and loving person, and to this day, has no clue how mean and awful some people are. And that, yes, people do hold it against people, these sorts of things. It's very, very true. I think to, to challenge the, the saccharine reading of this that love will save us, 
which, which is very important to me because I listened to pop songs growing up. I think it's a little something different. I think that what this movie is, is telling us that all Barry needed was somebody to not see him the way everyone else sees him. It's not that he needs somebody to save him. It's he needs somebody to see him for who he is. Luis Guzman's character sees him for who he is, but that's not enough to counter the way that the sisters perceive him and, and talk about him. And, you know, that's the kind of thing if you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a sex line today. It would be social media. It would be reaching out to somebody online and just being desperate for them to see you for who they are. But those kind of parasocial relationships are doomed to fail in the same way. That's what that movie would be now. That's all I was trying to say. But I think one of the most heartwarming parts of this film is actually the Luis Guzman and the rest of the guys at the at the place. Because <laughs> Barry Egan owns his own business, which is a novelty toilet plunger manufacturer. And the people who work for him, like at first you think like, oh, these people just like they put up with him because he's quirky and you know, he, they're his employees. It becomes really obvious by the end of the film that Luis Guzman's character and the rest of the guys there love him. Like, they care about him. Like, as soon as he says he's going to Hawaii, they're very happy. Like, they're like, good for you. Like, I found that to be almost more heartwarming than the actual love story. Yeah, I, I mean, does, does Barry actually own his own company? Like, I would thought, like, he might have been, like, some kind of weird pyramid scheme here running. I I don't know. It's it's really weird. There, there's toilet plungers, but he's also kind of not the boss, but kind of the boss. It's it's really weird. <laughs> but, yeah, like, Luis Guzman goes with him to buy the the Healthy Choice yogurts and or uh, pudding cups and is, like, listening and taking notes. I think that, that very bizarre Healthy Choice storyline is meant to tell us he is very competent he is actually very smart and has the acumen for this this kind of thing um i think that's what it's there to do yeah i mean so you know this this movie leaves us on a warm and loving note and and of course pt anderson continues that warm and loving note into his next movie there will be blood wait no that's not right at all um (laughs) and we're not going to talk about that Right here, Andy asks if Paul Thomas Anderson also directed No Country for Old Men. No, he did not. That is the same, but that's the same year. I saw those movies on the same day because I saw uh, the Oscar showcase. So I saw all the movies. I think Mike, I think that maybe that was the year Michael Clayton was nominated, which is just a really decent George Clooney movie. I don't know why it got nominated. But anyway, this is the closest anybody in PTA's world has come to winning an Oscar because Daniel Day-Lewis, in fact, did win for his role in that movie, which is great. Oh, man. I Drink You Milkshake is one of the best lines from a, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. But the oh, movie that comes... The one from Phantom Thread. Yes. The best one is the line from Phantom Thread, Are You a Spy? So the movie that comes after There Will Be Blood is one of my least favorite movies. I assigned this one because I wanted to give it another shot. I was not in a good place when I saw this, and I know a lot more about Scientology now than I did then, so I thought, let's give it a shot. The Master is from 2012. It stars Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd, who is supposed to be an L. Ron Hubbard type. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix who plays Freddie Quell, who could be a David Miscavige type. I'm not really sure. And then you have Amy Adams, 
as Dodd's wife, Peggy. Scientology is renamed The Cause. And this is all, this is loosely based on the early years of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard following World War II. Uh, it, it involves a few other things I'll talk about here in a moment. It is a true pastiche of a film, and that's part of the reason why I don't think it's any good. But did you like it, Tessa? I'll start with you this time. This was my least favorite of the three. I So I'm going to say this now. I kind of teased it at the beginning when I said that watching these three movies kind of solidified some things as far as my opinions about P.T. Anderson. I think P.T. Anderson is a very good filmmaker. I think he's, you know, a great auteur. I can see why people like him so much. I think that for a lot of his movies, the parts do not equal a whole. Like, there are some really, really excellent parts to this movie. There's some great acting by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams. There's some great scene work in this film. It doesn't really add up to a great movie for me. And I feel that way about Magnolia. I felt that way about There Will Be Blood. In fact, I think that Punch Drunk Love and The Phantom Thread are the only two that I really felt like, yeah, these are solid all the way, all the way through every single scene. It all adds up to a really great film. Those two for me really stand out. This movie to me, great parts. The whole was kind of meh. Once again, I'll have to take the part of contrarian and be the exact opposite of Tessa, the inverse, where uh, all the all the individual parts are are uh, are meh, but the whole is amazing. Um, okay, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, this was good, but this movie was also just so deeply uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, it, it is deeply uncomfortable. And the, the, the fact that he's able to create this mood is, is definitely, you know, a point in his favor. You know, since the first time I've seen this, I, I read uh, Going Clear. I watched the entire series that Leia Remini and uh, Michael, Michael Reinder, um, I believe, uh, made about Scientology and all the things that go into it. And, and it's, just, it's just this really interesting thing. But I don't, I don't, it just doesn't map well to me. Like, as a, as a story that's meant to be loosely based on Scientology, it doesn't work. As a movie that's not supposed to be loosely based on Scientology, it doesn't work. I don't know what this movie's trying to say. I think the acting's great, but, so here's what's interesting. It is loosely based on the life of L. Ron Hubbard, but it also has elements of the Navy story, the Navy stuff at the beginning. Most of that's based on Jason Robard's stories about being in the Navy that he told him back when they were making Magnolia. It's also, it includes some repurposed, deleted scenes from There Will Be Blood. It also has elements of not just L. Ron Hubbard's biography, but John Steinbeck's biography. And it also is influenced by Thomas Pynchon's novel V. And it's just like, dude, pick a lane, man. You were doing so well. There Will Be Blood is an adaptation of like a small section of Upton Sinclair's novel Oil. He knows how to adapt and make a good adaptation. This sucks as an adaptation. The only thing that saves it really are Hoffman, Phoenix, and Adams, and Laura Dern, and Jesse Plemons. I mean... And Rami Malek. Man, there's some good performances in this movie that, that does not live up to those performances. 
Yeah, yeah. The 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 master's really lacking in like kind of a direction. Like like it's this really weird thing where all of a sudden we're on a motorcycle and then later it's 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 years later, we're like we're not getting any sense of feeling a time or flow. We're just kind of yeah. living in Freddy's <laughs> life for just a little bit. It's 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 so so weird and i wish we had more information about freddy or what was happening i wish that there was some feeling of climax instead but we we do get an amazing final scene but that's that's it it's really weird we also get you know just amazing amazing philip seymour hoffman and some of the best acting i've seen from joaquin phoenix but what's the arc I, i don't get it it doesn't have any precision in what it's trying to say at all exactly I honestly have been thinking about this since I watched these three films. Because, again, I loved Phantom Thread. I was kind of eh about about There Will Be Blood. I know people really love that film. It's just I've been thinking a lot about why I'm kind of meh on PTA a lot of his films and why I really like some of the elements of his films. And I think it's because he is working with a point of view that fundamentally I don't care about. In a lot of ways. And I understand that there are people who really do care about it. And I I really respect the fact that they do. But for me, this is just more father and son stuff. And that's what happens in The Master. He's trying to say something about a surrogate father, right? Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quill. And how they kind of get into this dysfunctional surrogate father, surrogate son relationship. But I don't think they actually say anything. Like, Magnolia had more to say about fathers and sons than this movie did. And I, and Magnolia, I'm also kind of meh about. So it's just kind of like, I, I, wh- are you trying to say that Scientology actually could help people? Are you trying to say that it, it could help people, but it'll also still leave them messed up? Are you trying to say, like, what are you trying to say here? Although I did really enjoy that ending scene, like you said, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I do did really enjoy <laughs> Seymour Hoffman just straight dead eye telling Joaquin Phoenix that in the next life, they'll be mortal enemies. <laughs> that made me laugh really hard but yeah i think for me this is the same problem i had with ad astra like this is really well made but i just don't have any i don't have any way into this movie i don't have any perspective that i can really get behind here i mean and and it doesn't mean that i don't like movies with terrible people in them i watch plenty of movies with terrible people in them but there's just no entry point for me in this film there was in punch drunk love there was in the phantom thread but these other movies, I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, I can see a lot of really great scene work, but I don't really, I don't really have an entry point into what is being said here. Yeah. Oh, what is it with Paul Thomas Anderson and destroying bathrooms? Because that happened in Punch Drunk Love as well. Bathrooms, bathrooms. Did a bathroom <laughs> his wife? Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Tessa, you got jokes. And we also have like the the sense of framing <laughs> that is very Wes Anderson-y. Like, like it it's it's very much yeah. Wes Anderson, but also not at all. Like it's so weird and so purposeful. I was actually gonna mention this when you were talking about the opening scene of Magnolia. The opening scene of scene of Magnolia made me think this could have been made by Wes Anderson if Wes Anderson was super depressed. Like if he was just really, really depressed, he could have made this opening scene. So yeah, I could actually see I know Wes Anderson comes later, so maybe we could say PT Anderson is kind of an influence on some of Wes Anderson's. Maybe a little bit there. No, I can see. Tenenbaums, I can see. Tenenbaums is around the same. Time okay, I can see some. I can see some maybe conversations happening here aesthetically. So, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. 
I have one critique of Magnolia, and it's a pacing thing, but it's not what you think it is. I don't think the movie's too long at all. I said this to my friend as we were leaving the theater, and I still believe it today. There's one single thing wrong with how that movie is paced. Yup, pacing. Not acting, not story, but the pace. You cut one of the characters out completely. Tessa, do you have a guess? Tessa has no guess. Tessa does not want to play this game. So, oh, wait, wait. I, I, I remember one of the reviews for this that I saw and I disagreed with recommended this. And it said what Magnolia may have needed was some good or some honest to God violence. No, that's not it. Oh, darn. no. What? So at the beginning of the movie, we get the three stories, right? And we get they check in with those stories at the end to just make sure we remember, right? But then it keeps going. There should have been there should have been another thing about those three things right in the middle of the movie. Yeah, yeah, that like a like a prompt. Remember, remember, remember. You know, and we don't get that. So yeah, the, I think that's the, the one thing the narrator could have done some more. Yeah, but so the issue here is that that he has a very singular voice. Uh, P.T. Anderson does. And and so he wants to do things very specifically his way. And he does that until the master, when instead of doing things in a very singular P.T. Anderson way, he's going to do like seven different things in one movie. So to me, it's no wonder that it fails. His worst movie to me by far is his next movie, Inherent Vice, which is a, it's an adaptation of a Thomas Pynchon novel. And it's like, dude, you're doing like single story, big idea, monomyth things. And you're going to turn around and do this postmodern bullshit? Forget it. And I'm so glad he dropped that when he did Phantom Thread later, which is a return to form. I'm sorry. I'm still getting over the fact that you want to add time to a three-hour long movie in order to fix the pacing. Well, he also wants to to change it to a, a Showtime original series right after Dexter and Yellow Jacket. So, you know... Both are things you should watch, people. I just want more Paul Thomas Anderson films films in my life. Right. I was so happy to see Phantom Thread because it's like, it's good. He's good. He's good. It's He's good again. Good He's good again. And Baby Heim is the star of Licorice Pizza. I am so excited. I am hoping, I have fingers crossed, that, that she breaks out in the same way that that Adam Sandler did. I I just I really want to see that. And by the way, after I, I didn't say this earlier either, and after Punch Drunk Love had to wait 17 years for Adam Sandler to make good on the fact that he is a damn fine actor. And I just I'm not saying he's wasted on the comedy that he does, because he's not. But I wish, I wish, I wish he had like multiple Oscar-nominated roles at this point. I, I thought the same thing about Jim Carrey, by the way. What you're saying is you want Alana Haim to have 17 years of, uh, of Grown Ups and Grown Ups 2 before finally getting a great acting role again. Oh, good Lord. No. <laughs> so that is the trajectory of Paul Thomas Anderson's career. He, he, in between The Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza, he did a lot of music videos for Radiohead, which makes sense because Johnny Greenwood is his uh, composer of record. Now and and Heim, of course, getting to know them—that's what manifested uh, what we're going to see in Licorice Pizza, and I'm really psyched for it. But 
It's time for our last segment, a, a Tessa favorite. Rank that list! On this episode of Rank That List, we're going to, much like we did with Accidental Autor episode of Monkey Number 1, Wong Kar Wai, which Tessa put together, we're going to rank the movies that we've seen of Paul Thomas Anderson's oeuvre. I've got the entire thing. I've seen them all. Andy, let's start with you. The first 30 minutes of There Will Be Blood. The Master. Magnolia. Punch Drunk Love. Mm. You didn't like There Will Be Blood, huh? Uh, the first 30 minutes, which, by the way, I'm not even certain if it was because there's this thing called alcohol. And I was drinking that. And I don't remember what happened, but I do remember waking up and Netflix had finished playing There Will Be Blood. So I've abandoned my child. Tessa? I never saw a milkshake. So worst to first. So the master, Magnolia, and I put Magnolia above the master only because of that twist with the frogs, which is excellent. It's excellent. (laughs) And there will be blood, punch drunk love, the phantom thread. Is Magnolia the only movie other than The Princess and the Frog that has a plot twist involving frogs? I don't know if it's the only one, but it's probably the most horrifying one. Okay. I think you're, Thumbelina you're... has a plot twist involving frogs. <laughs> okay, fine. All right, here it is. The definitive Sam countdown of P.T. Anderson movies. At number eight, we have the Pomo travesty that is Inherent Vice, starring my least favorite Phoenix. Number seven. I just don't like him, okay? Number seven, Boogie Nights. Everything other than the scenes that involve Don Cheadle is done better in Magnolia. I feel like Magnolia is a better version of Boogie Nights. That's just all there's to say about that. Oh, I I did enjoy Burt Reynolds and Heather Graham. Burt Reynolds was also nominated for an Oscar for Boogie Nights. Number six, it's a true story, The Master, which, which really makes it to number six on the strength of the acting. Number five, Heart Eight. These are all great movies from this point forward. Number four, Phantom Thread, which again, it's just a great movie. Loved it so much. Are you a spy? Number three, Daniel Day-Lewis's other PTA movie, There Will Be Blood, which means my top two are unchanged, and I don't think they'll ever be changed, Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. The interesting thing about watching them, and watching them with Tessa especially, is you can see the faults in both of these movies. They haven't aged perfectly. They've aged pretty well. But they still are going to have that, that meaning. You know, it's, it's not like that other pop culture franchise that someone in my study group introduced me to that has aged very poorly because its creator is a trash human being. Paul Thomas Anderson as an auteur, and we have problems with auteurs. You, you know, thinking of filmmaking as an auteur-based thing is always going to set you up for disaster. But so far... Paul Thomas Anderson has managed to thread the needle. Not all of his movies are great, but I love, I love knowing that there's going to be a next one. And I'm so excited for Licorice Pizza. Okay, two things before we close. First of all, is he threading that needle with a phantom thread? Yes! Also, are you leaving your... I, I know you said that Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia will probably always be your favorites. And I respect that. I respect that. But are you leaving yourself open to love with Licorice Pizza? Oh, my God. Um... I am so, so, so excited. It is, the early reviews say it is very much a shaggy dog of a movie. It's, it's, which to me, 
I've been waiting for Paul Thomas Anderson to just let it go, to let it loose and have a good time. And Alana Haim, I think, is just a perfect choice for the, the, the story he wants to tell. This could be his version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Just wanting to, to sh- the, the movie's just a vibe. That's all. I, 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 it's over two hours, and, and I just can't wait. I just want it to all hang out. I hope there's like a 17-hour long director's cut that we actually get to see. I'd watch that for Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. But it just brings me joy. Alana Haim and I, I say this and I will say it to my grave, made significant eye contact at the House of Blues in Dallas. She's my favorite, Haim, and I'm just so excited. So yes, I am open to loving this movie. Licorice Pizza is out now. In limited release, wide on Christmas Day, where the normals can actually probably see it. But the normals will be watching Spider-Man. Well, that came out a couple weeks earlier. The normals will be watching The Matrix, either at home or at the movie theater. Uh, so spider-man came out six days before christmas yeah but see it's over we already all saw it come on man i thought it was really weird to bring in the japanese live action spider-man as well into the fold okay which one was better though i think this ep actually comes out before spider-man's released but i'll play your game what was more surprising when nick cage's spider-verse character showed up when Miles Morales showed up, or when Daredevil showed up. Okay. Which one? Which one was, I mean, they were all great. Right, and- right. They, they were all great, and they all competed with the surprise of John Mulaney's live-action Spider-Pig. <laughs> but having Nick Cage as noir Spider-Man show up, that was, that was just, oh, man. Uh, I, do have to, I do have to say, Jake Johnson's dad bod Peter Parker works surprisingly well in live-action, too. Yeah. I and and I mean I I don't want to like gloss over the end credit scene where we're gonna I'm so psyched for Spider Gwen you guys like it's gonna be great yeah but I thought it was really weird that they got Scarlett Johansson a player (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) tune in next week (laughs) for the beginning of. Go ahead, Tessa. Tell the people what's happening next week. Next week marks the beginning of the 13 Days of X-Men, where we have watched 13, all 13 movies of the Fox X-Men series, and we are releasing 13 episodes. There's going to be lots of really cool guests and lots of really cool stuff about the highs and lows, the very high highs and the very low lows of the Fox X-Men series how it won our hearts and then broke our hearts and then won our hearts again and then just stomped them into the ground. Andy guest stars on an episode. It's going to be great. That's right. I guest star on an episode of my own podcast. (laughs) That's right. And then we'll be back with our year in review episode to close out this very, very foolish year where so many foolish things have happened. And by the way, I, I, I know it's not at the top of the list, but Going back to the New York and L.A. limited release thing that is Licorice Pizza, one of the very, very foolish things that should never have come back, I can't believe in this day and age, after everything that's happened, when we're having the argument about how long it should take for a film to get to VOD or streaming because we're just sick and tired of the movie theater, how are we still doing limited releases? Come on. I don't know. Venom Let There Be Carnage is now out, so. Yeah, well. Okay, so perhaps we'll talk about that in one, two, three weeks from now. 
uh, in the meantime, where can we find all your thoughts on all these things online, Andy? You can find me online on Twitter at Andy Noted Tessa. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other pa- You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find me online at Sam underscore Morris9. And if you can find a copy of it, because the publishing industry is having a super good time right now, you can find me in the new book. Pearl Jam and Philosophy. I got my author copy the other day. It's super exciting. Also, tell us what you would like for us to talk about for future auteur episodes. As I said, our next auteur episode is lined up for early next year. To give you a hint, that episode will be near, far, wherever you are. In the meantime, send us your thoughts about all things auteur, any pop culture that you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website at monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. It can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Milkshake.